This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. What does a world look like where every girl really has the opportunity to fulfill that full potential? We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The United Nations Population Fund says that the COVID-19 pandemic could have a lasting impact on women's health with its disruption of some health services. It may also have a negative impact on younger girls globally as schools and other support services have shut down. Kristen Brandt is co-founder and chief programs officer at She's the First, a non-governmental organization that fights gender inequality in 21 countries. I spoke with her about similarities between COVID and the Ebola outbreak and why the lessons learned during Ebola are very relevant now for protecting girls around the world. Kristen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Bev. I'm so excited to be here. Well, let's talk about COVID-19 and the intersection with gender. There have been discussions about the impact on women, particularly on the disruption of services for domestic violence victims and other uh women's health services. What about younger girls? You've said that there's a unique problem set for them, and you've also done a case study about this. Tell me about it. Absolutely. So when we think about the domestic violence issue that's been getting quite a lot of reporting recently that's impacting women, we need to remember that that also impacts girls and that girls are impacted by domestic violence. But at the same time, especially when you look at a global landscape, When you have girls who are at home, behind closed doors, cut off from school, cut off from social services, they have a whole host of other problems that they're dealing with as well because they don't have those links to the support services that they need to report issues when they arise. So we're looking at after COVID and during COVID, seeing an uptick in things like teenage marriage, seeing an uptick in teenage pregnancy, where just thinking about the high rates of violence that we know are going to come about because of this pandemic. Let's dive a little deeper on that. How do you mean that the pandemic is impacting the younger girls in terms of domestic violence and in cases of the teen pregnancy increasing? Yeah, so this is something that we we know is true because we've seen it play out in other epidemics before. And the golden case study for this really is looking at Ebola from 2014 to 2016 in West Africa. Because what we saw during Ebola was a really similar situation where we had schools closed and government forbid people from gathering in public spaces. It was a highly contagious disease and a highly contagious virus. And so we see a lot of parallels between these two situations. Let's talk about those parallels. What happened during Ebola is that we saw families, first of all, really struggling economically. So we know it's true across the world that many, many people are facing unemployment and they're struggling to figure out how it is that they're going to get food on the table. 
what we know with girls is that whenever a, a family is struggling economically, girls often pay the price for that. And so we see that families are forced into difficult situations where they're deciding that now they might be marrying a girl off before the age of 18 in order to reduce some of the burden on family. Similarly, we see higher rates of transactional sex, and that's something that happened quite often during the Ebola epidemic, is that girls didn't have any resources to trade, either for food, for rent, for their families. And so we see that girls ended up in these situations where transactional sex was, unfortunately, at, at a higher rate than ever. Um, similarly, we saw rates of teenage pregnancy increase. If you look at Sierra Leone, for example, there were studies done just after Ebola that teenage pregnancy rose by almost 65% in many regions across Sierra Leone. So we know that cutting girls off from school, cutting them off from social services, and then putting a ton of pressure onto their family units is a recipe for, for really dangerous situations for them. And you were in Sierra Leone immediately after the Ebola crisis. Talk a little bit more about what you saw there. And specifically, you've talked about a disconnect between the organizations that are already on the ground in some of these countries who are available to help young girls and the healthcare organizations that often are brought in to help deal with the pandemic. That was the case in Ebola. And you're seeing the same happening with COVID, correct? Correct. So a lot of times we think about a global health pandemic and the natural response is to start putting funding into health solutions, into health and sanitation solutions. And of course, those are vital. This is a health pandemic. But what happens is that we overlook many of the social services that really are there to catch some of the most vulnerable people in society. So with Ebola, for example, many resources were diverted away from not only schools and social services and after-school programs, but also from reproductive health clinics. And the clinic workers who were working there and the, the actual funding, the medications, all of these resources that were formerly put toward, toward reproductive services for girls and for women were diverted. In addition to that, you have girls and women who are, of course, afraid to go to clinics with any of these issues because they don't want to catch a virus. And so that's a huge part of what contributes to teenage pregnancy. Now, girls' organizations, and particularly grassroots girls' organizations, they're incredibly well-placed to make sure that the most vulnerable girls and community members have access to the information that they need. But because of this funding prioritization going to traditional health organizations, they're often overlooked in the response to a crisis like this. And so what I mean when I say that is that these local organizations, they're already working with some of the most remote communities. They're working in local languages, and they're already working in gender-sensitive ways. And so they're really well-positioned to tackle some of these issues in a way that larger organizations simply aren't set up to do. So how do you change it so that organizations that know the communities best and speak the local languages can get the much-needed information out. I would imagine with the spread of COVID-19, this is a, something that's very critical. Absolutely. And we are seeing that some of these girls' organizations have already started to pivot. 
And we're really seeing that play out in three main ways. So first is the issue of food and water insecurity. So as we mentioned earlier, because of the economic impact of this crisis, we're seeing that a lot of families are struggling to figure out how they're going to put food on the table. And so one way that girls' organizations are helping to ease the impact of this is actually by finding ways to provide food kits that come along with water, that come along with hygiene supplies, soap, menstrual pads, all of these pieces that families really need so that they really don't have any reason to go outside of the home. They don't have that same pressure to provide for their families. That also has the added benefit because it's coming from girls' organizations who've been working with these girls for a long time. It means that it it puts kind of a, a social capital behind this girl in her family. It's because of her that they're receiving these ongoing food drops, that they're receiving this ongoing support. And so it it softly underlines the importance that she has and, and the value that she brings to the family so that it also helps to prevent some of these issues like early child marriage, because the family is really putting an emphasis on what it is that she's able to bring in and she's able to contribute. We're finding that girls' organizations are working in two other big ways as well. One is this idea of health and hygiene education, that they are translating information into local languages, uh, but they're also you know, creating videos, creating their own information to make sure that it's culturally relevant to the communities that they work with. And then finally, you know, just making sure that girls have a lifeline to help. So these organizations are also thinking through kind of with technology or through phone trees, what are the ways that they can make sure that girls and their communities have access to support when and if they need it, whether it's because they're sick or they're concerned that they might be sick or because there's something even more dangerous happening in relation to domestic violence or sexual abuse or that kind of thing. You've given a great description of the parallels between COVID and Ebola. And what you're talking about here are some of the lessons learned from Ebola. Are those lessons being applied in a widespread manner? Or do you worry about history repeating itself? We're definitely worrying about history repeating itself in many ways. I think, you know, a few of the countries that were impacted by Ebola, we're seeing them start to take the lead on just advising on how to get information out. But I'm not seeing much of a coordinated response from governments, for example. So what I'm seeing is that even still this time around, we have governments, for example, in Sierra Leone, who are giving notices in English. But of course, most of the population does not speak English. Much of the population speaks Creole. And so it's really up to these community organizations to ensure that information is getting out to these communities. Maybe it's just me, but this is not an issue that I've heard widely discussed. How difficult is it to get this message out and make sure people understand that the work at the grassroots level with the people who know the community and the people in the community best actually happens. Mm. I do think because so many people in the world right now, all of us really are being impacted by this pandemic in some way, 
it's getting a little bit hard for people to think and to look beyond their own nose in some respects. And so one of the biggest challenges with this is there is a lot of attention on kind of global efforts around combating this pandemic and around flattening the curve. There's a lot of attention being placed on kind of country levels. And then, of course, everyone is very concerned with their own individual efforts to flatten the curve and to protect themselves. And I think it's easy for all of us to forget that there are so many communities who are not being serviced at that kind of top level when we think about a countrywide response, whether that's indigenous communities, communities that are speaking local languages, communities that are marginalized in some way who just are having issues accessing the information that's coming out at the country or global level. And so for me, that's where making sure that as many people as possible are thinking through and remembering those grassroots organizations when they think about this pandemic is is really crucial. I mean, if you think about your own community, I'm sure that you're seeing this play out as well. Here in New York, we have a number of mutual aid organizations that have popped up that have started doing work on ensuring that elderly community members have access to groceries, for example, or that immunocompromised people don't have to go out to the grocery store. You know, there are a number of organizations who are just working to really ensure that the community is taking care of itself. And what we need to remember is that they are some of the most effective ways of ensuring that community by community, we're all safe and protected. And we just need to make sure that those are the organizations all around the world who are getting the resources that they need in order to do that most effectively. And it's important to note that you mentioned this is something that is global and also something that needs to happen in the United States. It might not be specifically girls organizations in the U.S., but organizations helping the elderly or the people who are immunocompromised. Absolutely. It's it's really the idea that local organizations understand their communities best. And during a crisis situation, they really are best place to work with those communities. They're not starting from scratch. And when you think about how much of of this type of crisis is dependent on people having the right information in a way that they can understand, that's where the value of local organizations, I think, becomes becomes really, truly obvious. And I think where I would make a plug for girls' organizations going a step beyond that is just that those girls' organizations understand the unique challenges based on gender that come up for girls. And so they're able to respond in a way that benefits the whole community without leaving girls behind. I want to circle back to something that you mentioned at the very beginning. And uh, the term, I think, maybe best describes it as a second wave crisis. You've got the global COVID-19 pandemic, just like you had in the Ebola outbreak. But you talked about the teen pregnancy and the forced early marriage. That happened after Ebola. And there's a concern that it may happen after COVID-19 if the lessons learned from Ebola are not fully applied. Can you talk a little bit more about what you saw with that second wave crisis after Ebola and really how to key in on the prevention this time around? So there are a number of pieces that we saw in play after Ebola and that we're really concerned about. 
repeating itself now. So first is that with schools closed for so long, and especially, you know, the timing of this right now means that many students across the world are returning back to school just in time for exams later this year. And it it really puts a big question mark over the heads of many students and many parents around whether or not returning to school makes the most sense for them and their families. And that's because students are feeling ill-prepared for upcoming exams that would determine their educational future, but also because while students are out of school, they are being given other responsibilities. And part of the challenge when you're not in constant contact with parents is just ensuring that students are continuing on their educational journey and that they're not being saddled with additional responsibilities within the home and especially during this crisis outside of the home. So that's one of the top concerns is just that we always see after schools are closed for any reason that there tends to be a drop off in the number of students who end up coming back. So that's kind of first and foremost, but Beyond that, when we did a survey of local organizations that we work with, 100% of those organizations came back and said that one of their top concerns was teenage pregnancy. And that's because with girls out of school and families concerned about the pandemic, many of them are actually even leaving city centers or population centers. They're returning to home communities and there's a bit of a a backslide happening where parents who previously were working as really in partnership with local organizations are now back in more traditional environments. And suddenly the idea of, you know, marrying off your daughter makes a lot more sense and it, it makes more economic sense and it makes sense for the surroundings that the family now finds themselves in. In addition to that, you know, we know that teenage pregnancy is on the rise because girls and their partners simply don't have access to the reproductive health services that they normally do. They can't get access through school. They can't get access through after-school programs. And even the clinics are essentially closed to them with so many resources being reallocated to the pandemic. And you have stats to back up, and I think they're pretty commonly known, that the more educated a girl is, the more successful she is later in life. And that success comes back into her community in multiple ways. Absolutely. And, you know, not just into her community, but we even see that with the more educated population of girls and of women, that an entire country's GDP rises. But even in the the immediate future, one of the things that we're seeing is that many of the girls who are educated are now going back into their communities and they're using that education in order to improve their communities during this time. So when we think about the interventions that local organizations are putting into place, whether it is call centers for local populations to, to call in their local languages about symptoms or mentorship via WhatsApp and via phone or these food care packages that we mentioned, Many of these interventions are based on this population of educated girls that the organizations are working with. And so when we think about that call center, for example, uh, there's one in Guatemala set up by an organization called Maya, and they set this up 
almost exclusively with graduates of their program who are now in nursing school or who are graduated nurses who are able to answer the phones in indigenous languages so that people understand what next steps they need to take if they're feeling sick. In the Gambia, there's an organization called Starfish, and they've been working on skits in every local language that gets reposted as videos. But it's actually the mentors, these girls who came up through their program, who designed that, who filmed that, and who are getting that out via social media. And so we talk a lot, I think, about girls as a mechanism toward a brighter future, but we don't often talk about how educated girls really change the landscape that we're living in right now in the present. And that's something that we're seeing with this response that's happening from local organizations right now as well, which is that the girls that they work with are really a huge asset to the responses that they are able to take. And let's talk about your organization. She's the first. You co-founded it. And I want to know what made you want to start the group. Yeah, so you're right. We did start She's the First about a decade ago. And I grew up in a house of women. So my mom was a single mom when she had me. She was 19. And so I grew up with my grandparents and, and a bunch of aunts all under one roof. And we also had many experiences, frankly, with men who weren't as great. And so my childhood experience really informed and helped me to understand two things. Uh, first, the power of girls and women, especially when they're, when they're working together. And two, that there are systems in place that absolutely hold girls and hold women back from achieving everything that they can achieve in the world from really fulfilling their their full potential. And so when we started She's the First, I was really interested in what does a world look like where every girl really has the opportunity to fulfill that that full potential. And so today at She's the First, we work to ensure that girls everywhere are educated, respected, and heard. And we do that through training local organizations that work with girls to improve that programming, through partnering with local organizations and, and doing subgranting and funding for them. And also, we work on advocacy, both with our local partners at the community level, as well as at the global level, to bring just to bring knowledge and information around this issue of girls' rights. You're in 21 countries now, I understand. Yes. So we run programming with partners in 11 countries, and then we have advocacy chapters of students who work toward helping others to understand these issues in 10 more countries. Got it. Well, as we wrap up here, what other work are you doing on the COVID-19 pandemic? Our biggest initiative right now is our COVID-19 response fund. And that's a fund we started the week after COVID really started taking off. And uh -huh. it's designed so that we can bring in funds for not just our partner network, but for local grassroots organizations who are working in these three areas of food and water security, of health and hygiene information and education, and of technology access to ensure that both girls and their communities really have a way to slow and stop the spread of COVID so that we can make sure that we don't end up with that second wave crisis we've been talking about. And we haven't talked about technology, but real quick, that is such an important thing to have in this pandemic in particular, because people are at home, but they may still need to do work. And if you don't have access to technology, you can't do that. 
Absolutely. And it's doubly true for girls and women who find themselves in violent or dangerous situations during this pandemic. So that's why many of the local organizations, they've started creating things like toll-free numbers so that you can call whether or not you have phone credit or providing phones and providing phone credit out to the girls that they work with so that they always have a way to reach out for help. The communities who don't have that network access and don't have that technology access is really, really critical for for these local organizations to find ways to continue to stay in contact with them because it's that complete lack of contact that puts girls into really dangerous positions. And if people want to help you help the folks you're working with, how can they do that? Please come to shesthefirst.org slash COVID. You can learn more about our response, more about how our network is responding, and you can contribute to that fund that goes directly to grassroots organizations who are pivoting to address the crisis. Kristen Brandt, thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast, and best of luck to you. Uh, Bev, thank you so much for not only having me, but for really giving a platform to girls' issues during this time. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thank you. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.